You're listening to The Semi-Filled Writer. This is a show about my life experiences, my love for entertainment, and of course, my failures. Welcome to episode 18 of The Semi-Filled Writer. Now, I had a hard time preparing this episode for a couple of reasons. I've been doing this for about eight months now, and I'm starting to feel the fatigue of putting an episode together every two weeks. And it doesn't sound like much to do one every two weeks, but it is hard when you're doing it all by yourself. So there's the research, the writing, the recording, and then the editing is taking up a lot of my time. So it really adds up. Also, I've been feeling very conflicted about doing this particular topic that I'm going to talk about today. I don't know what you guys are going to think of me or the situation. You might think I'm just whining all the time. I don't know, but we'll see how this turns out. Now, a few days ago, we were reminded that a great man, Kobe Bryant, has passed away. We were celebrating his birthday. He would have turned 42 if he were still alive. And there is another great man that had a birthday in August. And that is my oldest brother. He would have turned 49. And I say would have because he died in 2005. And it was because of an improvised explosive device while serving under Operation Iraqi Freedom. You heard that right. He died in Iraq. I won't dedicate a full episode on talking about those first few days of dealing with his death and my relationship with him and things associated with that. One reason why, it's because it's too painful to talk about. I know this happened 15 years ago, but it's still very difficult to talk about certain things. I also have very strong feelings about my relationship with him and dealing with the death, and I even have feelings about the military, and I haven't even told my own family about those things. And so if I can't tell them, there's no way I'm going to be telling a bunch of acquaintances and strangers that are listening to me right now. What I will talk about is an organization that I hoped would help me get through the grief, and to some extent they did, but I also feel let down. Now, I want to make this very clear. I'm not doing this for pity. I'm not trying to play the victim. I am responsible for my actions, and I will admit that with a better approach, I probably would have had a better experience. And also, I'm not trying to disparage the organization. I'm not trying to get them canceled. They are doing a great service. They have helped thousands of people. I just think when you hear about great programs or products or anything that services a large number of people, there's never a 100% success rate. This isn't just talking about my opinions too. This is going to be a little bit informative. I'm going to tell you more about the organization, what they do, and the people I've met through this group and what I've learned. So let's just get started. At the time of my brother's death, I just moved to Southern California and attended grad school. I went home to Texas for a week and after the funeral, I came right back. There was never a question about moving back temporarily to stay with my family take a break to process the grief. No, I went back to school. It's what I wanted to do and it's what he would have wanted me to do. There was also this fear that if I took this break, then I may never return to California. I may never get another chance to make my dreams come true. It was the best decision for me. However, one major challenge in doing this was that I would have to grieve alone. I'm in a brand new place. I just started making friends at the school But over time, I became a burden to many of them. 
I talked way too much about my struggles. I had meltdowns at the most inconvenient times, and it wasn't fair to put any of that on them. And there may have been one or two people that completely dismissed my grief and, well, I hope they never have to go through this. I tried more practical ways to deal with my grief. First, I tried therapy. I first had to get past the cultural stigma of seeing a professional. I've been told therapy is for white people who can't deal with their problems. Not true. But I finally felt unashamed to go to therapy and it was hit or miss. I didn't mesh with a couple of them. One of them was just awful. And in a couple of instances, we were talking less about grief and they wanted to get more into other issues that I was not yet ready to talk about. And obviously, therapy is expensive. I also tried to find a support group. I found one through a church and again, didn't mesh. I found a group that was specifically for siblings and I was very eager to join this group. They would totally understand what I was going through. But when I contacted them, I found out I wasn't eligible to be in their group. At the time, I was about three years removed from his death, and the group was exclusively for those who were in their first year of grief. Great. After three years, I was still looking for answers. I was looking for a place that would welcome me and give me the strength and support that has long been overdue. After some intense research on the internet, I discovered the Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors, TAPS for short. This was it. TAPS was formed in 1994 by a woman named Bonnie Carroll, who lost her husband, Brigadier General Tom Carroll, in an Army C-12 plane crash. Here's their mission statement taken directly from their website. TAPS provides comfort, care, and resources to all those grieving the death of a military loved one. Since 1994, TAPS has provided comfort and hope 24-7 through a national peer support network and connection to grief resources all at no cost to surviving families and loved ones. When they say no cost, they mean monetary. Maybe that goes without saying. Here's how it works. You're an individual and you have a family member that is a member of one of the six branches of the armed forces. Yes, I am including Space Force. And this brave family member dies and it doesn't matter how they die. They don't have to be killed in action. It could be from cancer. It could be from an automobile accident. It could also be from suicide. Unfortunately, that happens more often than it should. So TAPS, I believe, has two objectives. One, they want to help the surviving family members heal and assure them that they are not alone in this painful situation. And two, they want to honor the deceased. Obviously, all of these men and women were willing to fight and sacrifice themselves for this country, and they deserve all our respect and love, even after death. Here is one thing that struck me as odd. I got the impression that any military family would be immediately notified of this organization. That the officer who gives notice of the death or a local veterans organization, they would provide a list of resources, people we could reach out to for assistance. Maybe they don't, and it really was up to me to seek out this information for myself. Or maybe they informed my parents and my brother's spouse, and it just didn't get to me. I don't know. TAPS has events all throughout the U.S. The first local event I discovered was a survivor seminar at Camp Pendleton. It was a weekend-long event filled with workshops, 
small group discussions, and networking with other survivors. This is what I was waiting for. I could finally be in a community. We'd share stories. We would laugh together. We would cry together. I would no longer be alone in this journey through grief. It was a Friday, and I took half a day off work, and I made the two-hour drive to Kent Pendleton while listening to Never Better by P.O.S. Great album. They were having a check-in that night and a welcome mixer. There were giant round tables in the ballroom with people scattered all across the place. Since I didn't know anybody, I saw a table with a few older people sitting down. A couple of them looked like I could get along with them. They had an empty chair and I just joined them. I met a few people that weekend. There was a woman from Northern California. Her son died in 2008. He was also in Iraq, also died by an IED. I met a young woman whose husband died in 2008. She was in Germany when he was in Iraq. It's just a couple of examples. By hearing their stories, I learned a lot about them, but they didn't learn a lot about me or my brother. And that's mostly my fault. I'm a bona fide introvert, and I find it difficult to volunteer information to people I don't know. People mistake my silence for being disinterested, or they think I'm just a good listener, but no. I have this mindset that people don't care what I have to say, otherwise they would ask me. It's an unreasonable expectation that people should know that they have to pull information from me. One thing I remember about the seminar was the breakout session. They separated the widows and put them in one group, parents in another, and the siblings in their own group. We had a moderator and they gave us the opportunity to just talk. How we've handled the grief, what we remember most about our brother or sister, and what things are still difficult to process. I heard very similar stories from the other siblings throughout this weekend. With the siblings that I met, they were all very close in age to their loved ones. They were best friends. They shared many moments together. They shared many secrets that they will take to their graves. It makes perfect sense that they're hurting. Another through line had to do with the widows. Not the nice ones that were at the seminar. I'm talking about the bad widows. So prior to a male soldier's death, before they get deployed, they get married and they have a child. And not long after they die, the widow remarries. The body's not even cold and they're already planning a huge celebration. And what's worse is that they cut off all contact with their in-laws. They forbid them to see her child. It's insane. This is one of the only things that these families have left of their loved one. This child is the only thing connecting them to the deceased and they're being taken away. I'm not trying to defend these widows, but there has to be a psychology to this. I'd like to think people can't be this cold hearted and maybe they move on as quickly as they do because of guilt, because of immeasurable pain. I, I don't know. This kind of decision results in a secondary loss to surviving families. This was not my story. My brother was over 11 years older than me. We had a great relationship, but that age gap changed our dynamic. I didn't bond with him the way these other people did with their siblings. Also, my sister-in-law didn't cut ties with us. She remarried many years later, but she and her children are still in touch with my family. So when these other survivors talked about their siblings, I started to grow angry. Hearing their stories was painful, but I, I didn't feel connected to them. I couldn't relate to them. 
I was so hung up on the fact that my story was different from theirs, I let it get to me. I don't remember if I was called on or if there was a lull in the discussion, but I decided to speak up. I broke down in tears, and I told him exactly what I just told you. I'm fortunate that we still have a relationship with my sister-in-law and my niece and nephew, but I do envy the connection they had with their siblings. I was conflicted. The other siblings were very kind in letting me share my thoughts. One of them hugged me afterwards. It, it felt good. At the end of the weekend, I didn't come out of here with a best friend like I hoped for. I did come out of there with sort of friends, the people I shared a table with throughout the weekend. We found out about a display called Arlington West. So every Sunday at Santa Monica Beach, the Veterans for Peace would install thousands of grave markers that would look similar to Arlington National Cemetery, and it raises awareness to the absurd number of American deaths due to the Iraq War. I'm actually not sure if they still do this. It's been a couple of years since I last went there and saw it for myself, but our group decided to drive up there together and check out the memorial after the end of the seminar. A couple of months later, one of the nice widows I met invited me to celebrate her husband's birthday with her and her family. We had dinner at their favorite Thai restaurant in Hollywood. We also went to the Griffith Observatory. She got a star named after her late husband, and we were trying to locate it in the sky despite there being a lot of light pollution. I lost touch with all of them one point or another, but I really do hope they're doing well. If I had to give a score for the seminar, I probably would give them like a 7 out of 10. I wasn't mad that I went. I just think I had very high expectations. About seven months later, I had another chance to attend a TAPS event. For the very first time, TAPS would host a sibling retreat. It would be held in Las Vegas and space was limited. It seemed like it would be similar to the Survivor Seminar, but there were two added features to this retreat. One, you could arrive a day early and undergo peer mentor training. A peer mentor is connected with another survivor and acts as a companion to them. You could talk on the phone, you could communicate through email, as long as you remained present and gave them a safe space to say whatever was on their mind. And to be eligible for a peer mentor, you had to be past 18 months of grieving. The second feature, you could invite your significant other to the retreat. They had planned a special workshop for spouses and long-term companions that would give them advice on how to best support their partners, particularly when it comes to grieving. At this point, I was four years removed from my brother's death. I felt I was in a much better place in life, so I decided to sign up for peer mentor training. I was also dating someone at the time. We had been together for about six months, but he was one of the few people that I felt comfortable talking to about my grief. He was not scared of my random outbursts, and I also didn't want to go to this thing alone. I'd be more comfortable if he came along, so he agreed. The peer mentor training started on Friday morning. It took place in the same hotel we were staying at and it was led by a wonderful woman named Dr. Darcy Sims. She's probably the best thing that's come out of TAPS. She had a great energy and shared information about grief that was very invaluable to me. And unfortunately, she died unexpectedly a few years ago. It was a huge loss for all of us. Anyway, she leads this training. I get to meet some of the other survivors. They were siblings, they were spouses. Everything was just fine. In the afternoon, we broke out into small groups and worked on an exercise. 
We would do mock conversations and practice how we would actively listen to the other person. Pick up on any verbal cues, repeat back something they said to confirm that we understood them. For one conversation, I was pretending to be the survivor and another person would be the peer mentor. They would have to put their training to the test. And the prompt, the topic we would talk about was something pretty innocuous, something like, uh, tell me your take on women in professional sports or uh, what do you know about chamomile tea? Totally lighthearted. And I don't know why I did this, but I ended up making the conversation about my brother. And like I said before, talking about my brother is extremely painful. And before I knew it, I started to cry. And these strangers I just met were trying to comfort me, but I was so embarrassed I put myself into this position. But this is what set me over the edge. This has to be the worst thing anyone has said to me at a TAPS event. There was this woman with short, blonde hair. I remember her being from New Mexico. She wasn't a trainer. She was just another participant, just like me. She first tries to console me, but then she says, maybe you're not cut out to be a peer mentor. Now, right now, you're probably thinking, that's not a terrible thing to say. It's not below the bow. What's the big deal? I'll tell you what the big deal is. You know, actually, I'll tell her. Lady, if you get wind of this show and listen to this episode, I just want to say your words were hurtful. I don't know if you meant harm, but that was a very vulnerable moment for me. I was ashamed of crying in public. I was sad thinking about my dead brother. And yet at that moment, you decided to tell me that I was basically a failure? That I don't belong here? There was no reason to say that out loud. You were probably right. I wasn't emotionally stable. I wasn't ready to be someone else's rock. But it wasn't up to you to make that call. Could have kept that to yourself. I eventually calmed down. I got through the rest of the training. I got my certificate. I wish I could say the rest of the day went better, but it didn't. Now after the training, the staff mentioned that they needed volunteers for check-in. The rest of the siblings would be coming in on that Friday night. Since we were now peer mentors and we had received the official TAPS t-shirts, they said if we wanted to help, we could go get changed and head to the ballroom as soon as we could. I had a hard time getting back to my room. My key wasn't working and the guy I was with wasn't nearby. I went to the lobby, got a new key, and then changed into my t-shirt. When I went over to check-in, there were already volunteers helping with everything. I had no idea what was needed, where I was needed. Nobody there acknowledged me, and I, I didn't know who to touch base with. So I'm just standing there for five minutes, wearing my peer mentor t-shirt, and waiting for someone to ask if I needed anything. I started to feel uncomfortable. I started to feel an anxiety attack coming on. It's a problem I've had for many years. I'm in a place where I sort of know people and it feels like everybody has a place in this circle. Everyone else has someone to talk to. Everyone else has a job they can do. They have a space that makes them comfortable. I don't have any of these things and the longer I stay in this space with no one to talk to, nothing to do, the walls just start caving in. And I feel like everybody else can see me as this loner as this weirdo that's just staring at everybody else. Eventually, I'll have to escape. And for any of you saying right now, well, you should just start talking to people, or, well, you just need to learn how to talk to people. Well, I say this lovingly, up yours, okay? You don't get it, you don't have to. Back to the retreat. So I'm standing there, 
looking like an idiot, wondering if anybody really needs my help. I just wanted to yell out loud, can somebody please tell me what to do? Then my discomfort got to a point of no return. I was about to make a scene, and I wouldn't be able to shut it down in time. I left the ballroom, went back to my room, and cried my eyes out. To put it simply, I felt like I didn't belong, and the loneliness I was trying to fight off was still there. I think there was a meet and greet that night, and I skipped it. My significant other finally returned, and he and I went off and did something else. The rest of the retreat wasn't that great. Part of it was because the events from Friday tainted the rest of the weekend, but also the workshops themselves were not that entertaining or informative. In the afternoon, they had this therapist, and she was speaking to us for an hour. It was incredibly boring. Within 15 minutes, I was seriously going to fall asleep. I had to step away, and my significant other followed me out. We just stood in the lobby for half an hour and then came back. I bet if I stayed in the lecture and I saw another couple leaving the room at the same time and they didn't come back for half an hour, I would have assumed that they were getting away for some extracurricular activities. So maybe people assume that of us, but no, nothing happened. I just didn't want to be caught snoring during the presentation. That's the God's honest truth. And look, I do want to acknowledge some of the cool things that they provided us on that weekend. The hotel we stayed at was really nice. It wasn't attached to a casino. It was outright a hotel. And we got these baller rooms. It was a suite. And we didn't even have to share. We didn't have to bunk up with other people. The room was just for the two of us. We also had free food and drink all weekend. On Saturday night... They took us to a Brazilian steakhouse at MGM Grand. Delicious. I think my ex and I stayed in Vegas for another day. We stayed at the Excalibur and played at the arcade. We played cheap roulette at a nearby casino. It was better than anything I did on the retreat. And when I got back home, I went back to work only to get laid off a few days later. Yeah, best trip ever. And again, I didn't connect with anybody in particular. We went as a group one night to check out different casinos, but it didn't lead to a long-term friendship. To be honest, I was still hung up on the fact that my experience was very different from everyone else's. I felt that the only way I could find a kindred spirit, a true friend I could confide in, is if they went through the exact same experience as me. They had to have a sibling at least 10 years older than them, and they were living thousands of miles away from their family. I know now that what I was asking for was way too much. I focused way too much on our differences and didn't see them as a positive. I didn't bother to look for other similarities. After the retreat, I think we got a survey about peer mentor training. They wanted feedback and wanted to know when we'd be available to offer our help to someone else. I don't remember exactly what I wrote, but whatever I said made it clear that I am in no position to be a peer mentor because I was never contacted about that. A couple of years later, I moved to another state, was still dealing with my issues and believed that I could benefit from a peer mentor. It would be good for me to talk to someone. I made the request and I never got a call back. The feelings from previous TAPS events started to resurface. I remember the feelings of being let down, feelings of helplessness, feeling like my grief does not matter to them. They didn't have an unsubscribe link on their emails but they did have a contact email address. So I decided to write to them and tell them to unsubscribe me from all correspondence. 
No more emails, no more newsletters, nothing. I tried to tell him that this wasn't for me and the last straw was not hearing from anybody regarding a peer mentorship. I wished him the best and thought that that would be the end of it. The very next day, I got a call from TAPS. I was actually at work and ended up talking to somebody for half an hour while I was in my office. She apologized profusely for the miscommunication. She wanted to hear more about my story and kind of where I was in my grief. She was exactly what I needed this whole time, and because of her, I reconsidered. I didn't quit TAPS. After that call, one of my coworkers came into my office and gave me a hug. She saw I was dealing with something serious. She had no idea what it was. She didn't care to know. She just, she could sense that I could use a hug. I got partnered with two different peer mentors. And for the life of me, I can't remember why I ended the first one. We were talking through email, and then we were going to friend each other on Facebook, and that was it. My next peer mentor, I talked to her a couple of times. We had played phone tag for one week, and then that just ended too. I'm going to take the L on that one. I made such a fuss about wanting to talk to someone, wanting to connect with someone, and when I finally found people that were willing to listen to me, I was like, you know what? I'm good. I'm looking at my previous experiences with the seminar and the retreat, and it's looking like the problem isn't really with the TAP staff. It has to do more with the other survivors I interacted with and my own hangups. Let's forward to several years later, to 2018. Another program they started within the last few years is Teams for TAPS. TAPS partners with professional sports teams all throughout the country to honor the fallen. As a survivor, you have the opportunity to go to a sporting event and even meet the members of the team. This is a big deal. I participated in these events. While I was living in Arizona, I got free tickets to a Phoenix Suns game, and I do remember seeing Blake Griffin getting ejected from the game. That was pretty cool. I moved back to California, and TAPS invited military families in the area to a Dodgers game on 4th of July. They would get to be on the field and hold up a giant flag for the national anthem. It wasn't clear if they would get to meet any of the players. Now, not everyone can attend. First off, they want everyone to have a chance to go to one of these events, so if you went to a Teams for TAPS event within the last three years, you're ineligible. Also, if more people signed up than there were spaces, then they would do a lottery to choose who gets to go. I signed up for this Dodger game, and I lost the lottery. It was too bad. A few months later, several NFL teams would host TAPS families during Veterans Day weekend. It was a salute to service. The Los Angeles Rams were inviting families to their training facility on a Saturday. They would have a meet and greet with the players, and on Sunday they'd get to go to the game and be honored during halftime. This time, I won the lottery. I was incredibly excited for this. Prior to Veterans Day weekend, Tavs wanted us to submit some information. They wanted a high-resolution photo of my brother, and they wanted me to complete a small biography of both my brother and me. I told him that my brother got his military start in Southern California. He did his basic training in San Diego. And the dude loved football. Loved it. I didn't mention that his favorite team is the Dallas Cowboys, but that's our little secret. As for me, I mentioned my job, my writing, and that I would also be getting married in the following year. One thing I want to mention, I was allowed to bring three other people with me to this event. Of course. Eric was coming with me, but I didn't bring anyone else. I could have. I have uncles up north that would have been down for this. I have in-laws that could have joined us. 
But my feeling was that since they weren't really Rams fans, it wouldn't make sense for them to be there. In retrospect, I think the weekend would have been more enjoyable if we had two more people with us. And even though they might not like the Rams, they like my brother. They would do anything to honor him. There were some wrenches thrown into the weekend before it started, mainly wildfires. There was one that was incredibly close to their training facility in Thousand Oaks, so they had to evacuate. TAPS was doing their best to update the logistics, make sure we could still enjoy the weekend despite the fires burning in our neighborhoods and the entire metropolis smelling like smoke. On Saturday, we met instead in downtown Los Angeles and chartered a bus to USC campus, where the Rams were now practicing. We stand along the sideline and watch them run their drills. You ever see a professional NFL player up close? They are huge. All of them. Linemen, running backs, kickers. They're giants. Eric sees these players and wonders how we're even the same species. While we're watching them practice, John Fossil, the special teams coordinator at the time, approaches the families. It was nice that he wanted to meet the families, but there was one small problem. He put all of his attention on the children that were there. I should note, this weekend wasn't exclusive to any type of survivor. There were people of all ages there. So yes, he talked to all of the children. He gave them a ram's helmet to try on. He played catch with some of them. In fact, Taps posted a video on Twitter where they're playing catch and you can see Eric in the background. He's leaning against a wall. Now this is all great, and this was really sweet, but do you know what happened when Coach Fossil was walking closer to me? He ignored me. He walked right past me and went on to the next kid. Not even a handshake or a hello. Now this is a great time to introduce you to a concept called disenfranchised grief or disenfranchised loss. Disenfranchised grief is where society or most people will either overlook or dismiss someone's grief. When you find out someone dies, who do you think about first? It's usually the biological parents, the spouse, and the biological children. They get most of the sympathy, and that's fine. But everyone else, siblings, adoptive parents, same-sex spouses, we all get ignored. These are just a few examples, but this is a real thing. Anybody that has any connection with the deceased will experience pain when they die. And it only gets worse when that pain doesn't get recognized. This is what happened with John Fossil. He is kind to the children. He knows that they've been going through something difficult, but the adults are going through something difficult too. And he didn't bother to acknowledge it. And now he's a coach with the Dallas Cowboys and that just makes me dislike him more. Can I tell you who the MVPs were during the Saturday practice? Aaron Donald, Johnny Hecker, and a helpful Honda guy. I'll explain. At the end of the practice, each family is partnered with three Rams players. We would have a chance to speak with them for a few minutes, get an autograph, get a picture with them. After these breakout conversations, we could try to get autographs from some of the other players, but we had to be considerate of their time if they had to leave. So we weren't matched with either Aaron or Johnny, but they were nice enough to sign our helmets. Eric had the chance to fanboy and tell Aaron Donald how fun it is to watch him on defense. And Johnny Hecker talked to us for several minutes. He seemed genuinely interested in our story. Now, for some reason, Honda was a sponsor for this event, and they had two of their representatives at practice. One of them talked to us. He approached us and asked how we were enjoying the event. And there were about a dozen volunteers for TAPS. None of them talked to us. 
and it wasn't as if there were too many families to watch over. There were only 30 families. Also, who read our bios? Like I said before, when I wrote ours, I was under the impression that the Rams organization would read this. I didn't get confirmation that that happened. The three Rams players made no mention of it. Nobody said, hey, that's incredible that your brother served in both the Navy and the Army. Oh, it was great to meet you. Oh, and congrats on the engagement. You guys have a fantastic wedding. After practice, we had lunch at a restaurant on the Santa Monica Pier, and we had a private dining area to ourselves. It looked like there were enough tables that each family could have their own. So Eric and I got our table, and three volunteers, three people that were the same age as us, asked if they could join us. Now I was thinking, great, we'll get to talk to these people, we'll get to know them, they'll get to know us, it'll be a great lunch. It was awkward. And it wasn't any issue of me being quiet and expecting them to ask me questions. I tried. I asked them where they were from. I asked how they became volunteers. Next to the pier, the Arlington West Memorial was on display. One of them asked what that was about, and I told them. But that's as far as it went. We sat in silence most of the time, and the only thing they talked about amongst themselves was how they were going to get to downtown LA tomorrow morning. That begs the question, why were they there? Why did they volunteer for this? I mean, the biggest issue was logistics. They could help check us in, give us our goodie bags. They could corral us to the areas that we needed to be. If we had a question about where the bathrooms were, they could tell us. But what about human decency? What about making an effort to get to know these families and making us feel special during this weekend? That's what this was about, wasn't it? Eric and I went on a cruise for our honeymoon and our excursion tour guides were way better than these volunteers. Yes, that was their job. They were paid to be good tour guides. But do we need to pay these volunteers in order to get the same treatment? Sunday comes around. Game day. I'm feeling okay at first. I'm looking forward to the game. We meet up with everybody at a parking lot at USC. We all congregate in one corner and wait to walk together to the stadium. And... I didn't expect this to happen, but I was about to hear the second worst thing ever said at a TAPS event. There's a dress code for this game. We had to wear special t-shirts that were given to us, jeans, no shorts, closed toe shoes, and we couldn't wear hats that were of an opposing NFL team. The Rams were playing the Seahawks that day. Seahawks caps were not allowed. Eric didn't have a Rams hat, but he was planning to buy one when he got to the stadium. In the meantime, he had his L.A. Dodger hat, the one with the L.A. logo on it. He would wear it until he got his Rams cap. Now, while in the parking lot, the organizer of this event, the leader of this whole group, she sees Eric and says, that's a Dodgers hat. That's not the Rams. Eric says, well, it's still L.A. The organizer says, it's a different team. You can't wear that. We're all about the Rams today. They were nice enough to invite us today, so we need to support them. Eric says, well... Plan to get a Rams hat, but I'm going to keep wearing this one until I do. The organizer, rusting bitch face. What the hell, woman? I was so ticked off when she was trying to call Eric out. Again, you're asking, what's the big deal? I'll tell you. First off, this weekend wasn't about the Rams. This was about my brother and recognizing that he was a hero. Yes, the Rams are the home team. They're being great hosts, but we're the guests. The only reason any of this is happening is because soldiers died, families are in mourning, and they should all be recognized. Second of all, we followed the dress code. I can't say the same for everybody else. 
I spent the next hour looking at everybody else and what they were wearing. Some were wearing shorts, some were wearing sandals, some were wearing caps with different logos, and I don't think the organizers said anything to them. Why Eric? Why single him out? And I want to give her the benefit of the doubt. I really do. She looked exhausted. She had to scramble and rearrange the schedule when the wildfire showed up. She had to coordinate with her volunteers and the Rams organization and keep all of the survivors up to date on the plants. It's got to be a tough job. But she still could have been gracious. She could have said, hey, I, w I just want to give you a heads up. I don't know if the Rams will be okay with you wearing a Dodgers hat. I know it's LA and all, but it might be best if you don't wear it during the halftime show. Oh, or you're going to Rams cap. Oh, okay, okay, great, great. I'll admit I was way too sensitive about a stupid hat. But it's not just about a stupid hat. It's about a special teams coach pretending Eric and I don't exist. It's about an organization that doesn't read our bios that I put a lot of time and care into. It's about volunteers who don't show interest in us. It's about an organizer who cares more about what we're wearing than our well-being. The actual salute to service was incredible. They had photos of all our loved ones on display at the stadium. Thousands of Rams fans and Seahawks fans were able to walk by and see the faces of our heroes. For halftime, we were standing on the field. Each family was standing next to a two-foot by three-foot size picture of our family member, the one they were requesting earlier. Some guy was performing God Bless America, while a cameraman would pan across each family. You'd see all of our faces on the Jumbotron. Once that ended, we walked off the field, and we were met with a huge round of applause from the audience. It was wonderful. It was special. The rest of the game was great. We got to sit in the Paradex Suites, in the shade, with more free food. You know, I saw Jay-Z while I was waiting on the sidelines before halftime. And the cast of the TV show SEAL Team did a meet and greet with us. The entire cast was there, even the dog, Dita. But David Boreanaz, he wasn't there. And the Rams won. Barely. But once it was all said and done, when I got home with my Rams goodie bag and a Rams cap for Eric, I came to a very simple conclusion. I was done with taps. For good this time. You might think at this point that I'm just entitled. I'm just being a selfish person. It's kind of how I feel about myself right now. It's why I say I'm conflicted. I've been given an all-expense-paid trip to go to their seminar. I got to stay in a nice hotel. I've met professional NFL players. But I could pay for those hotel rooms if that's what I really wanted. I could save up and plan a trip to Vegas at any time. I'd like to go to Rams game when it's allowed again. I would drive over an hour to Inglewood, buy $100 seats at SoFi Stadium, and drink $15 beers. I didn't sign up for taps to get free stuff. I signed up so I could get help. So I could get hugs from other survivors. To tell people about how fearless my brother was, and how I wish, how I wish I had an ounce of his confidence. If only they wanted to listen. Like I said before, I'm not trying to say that TAPS is a terrible organization. I know there are a lot of wonderful people that work for TAPS. Bonnie Carroll, the founder, she's a recipient of the National Medal of Freedom. She earned this because of her work for TAPS. There are a ton of testimonials from survivors who have really benefited from this organization. My other brother, he went to a sibling retreat, had nothing but good things to say about it. And if Vice President Joe Biden, 
the NFL, the NBA, and even Gary Sinise want to partner with TAPS, then you know they're doing something right. As a member of TAPS, I got educated on grief, and I learned some valuable information about grief that has helped me. Number one, there is no benefit to calling death something other than death. I've heard euphemisms like, they passed away, or we've lost them. Recently, I've heard death being referred to as transitioning or expiring. Let's not sugarcoat it. They're dead. Calling it something other than that is not going to soften the blow. Number two, society says it takes one year to, quote, get over it. And if it takes longer, then there's something wrong with you. That's not true. People in mourning can take as much time as they need to grieve. You might feel better after a few weeks or a few months. If you're trying to work through your grief and it takes more than a year, it's okay. There is nothing wrong with you. And even if you start to feel better, you're finally able to get your head out of a fog, you will never entirely get over it. You will never be able to move on. You move through it. You will have a new normal and will learn how to continue on without that loved one no longer around. Number three, one death is not better than the other. People keep saying that someone dying of cancer or another terminal illness is easier to handle than when someone dies unexpectedly. Oh, at least you know the end is coming. You'll have time to settle all your affairs. You'll be able to say goodbye. You'll get closure. No, 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 no. Let's say someone has only six months to live, and every day of those six months, you're being reminded that that person is going to die. Seeing them decline in health, filling out paperwork, planning for the next holiday, and knowing that they won't be there. It's too much to bear sometimes. Basically, there is no right or wrong way to grieve, and all death is painful, even if you know it's going to happen ahead of time. When Dr. Darcy Sims presented this information to me, I was relieved. She helped me normalize my grief and assured me that there is nothing wrong with me. I really wish I discovered TAPS earlier. I really wish I learned all of this sooner. That would have saved me a lot of pain. So where do I go from here? I don't know if I'll be looking for another support group. After 15 years, I've been able to move through the grief, live a new normal. You know, I watched the Democratic National Convention a couple weeks ago, and Joe Biden said something interesting. And I'm sure many others have said the same thing. They've made the same point. He says, I found the best way through pain and loss is to find purpose. I've tried to find purpose in the beginning, I use my writing. I try to write stories inspired by my brother and stories that I think he would be proud of. I still do that, but I know I could do a lot more. And this would be the perfect time to announce my new endeavor if I had one. <laughs> I'm not starting a new nonprofit. I'm not publishing a book. Sorry about that. I have to do some research. I'd like to find an organization that I could volunteer with. I'd like to do something specific for sibling grief create a support network, write a book. You know there are tons of books about grief, but only a handful are specifically for sibling grief? Disenfranchised grief, remember? Whatever it is I decide to do, I want to follow the golden rule. Treat others the way I want to be treated. I know I've talked a lot, but I want to end with this. I went through some old emails, and I found the message I sent to TAPS when I first wanted to quit. I want to read it to you because the sentiment is still accurate today. Even though I gave them another chance, they, they couldn't change my mind. I've modified it in a few places to be more current, but here's what it says. Dear Taps, 
I believe it is time to say goodbye. After 15 years of grieving my brother's death, I believe that I no longer need services from this group. It is with great sadness that I make this decision. Even though I believe I didn't put in enough effort at times, I also believe that this organization did not meet my expectations. You let me down. This is in no way a criticism of your organization as a whole, although I've made mention of instances where you could improve. The Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors is a vital program that supports thousands of people who must deal with a military death. This group has also taught me that grief is different for everybody. Not everyone may benefit from TAPS, much like any other support group, but you encourage us to find the path that will help us get through one of the most difficult situations of our lives. For teaching me this lesson, I am eternally grateful, and I no longer feel guilty for the way that I grieve. However, it is up to me now to find purpose in my grief. I will try to find help elsewhere, and I want to help others. I would like to say more, much more, but I've done enough talking. It is time to take action. It is time to go to work. Thanks for what you do, and may you continue to provide love and comfort to others. Now, I don't know how you feel at the end of all of this, but I just want to thank you so much for listening. You can reach me at semifieldwriter at gmail.com. My website is semifieldwriter.com, Twitch, Instagram, at semifieldwriter. And I want you guys to do me a favor. The next time you talk to your family, whether you see them in person, whether you talk to them on Zoom or on the phone, tell them you love them. I'll see you guys in a couple of weeks. Take care.